0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What well, you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers readers publishers old friends new friends and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books reading or writing these will be informal over the backyard fence kind of conversations the kind i and booksellers everywhere have each and every day Kevin Kwan is my guest on the Literary Life today, and um, most all of you know that Kevin is the author of Crazy Rich Asians, which is the international best-selling novel. It was translated into more than thirty different languages. It had it became a trilogy with two sequels: China Rich Girlfriend and Rich People Problems. Um, and for several weeks uh, back in. 2018, the trilogy had the top three positions of the New York Times bestseller list. Completely unprecedented. And then there was the film, just that sort of film called The Crazy Rich Asians, a movie that became Hollywood's highest grossing romantic comedy in over a decade. Kevin, and I hope I don't make him blush, but he was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So Kevin, welcome to The Literary Life.
1: It's really, really such a pleasure to be here. It's been way too long since we've seen each other.
2: It has. And we'll talk a little bit about that because Kevin and I go way back, actually. But I want to read something to you that I came across in the LA Times. And I just want you to, you know, think about it. And then if you could react to it, I would love it. Kevin Kwan has had a singular influence on Asian American storytelling and Hollywood's pop cultural landscape. His best-selling Crazy Rich Asians trilogy chronicling the absurdly wealthy Asian families in Singapore set off a surge of demand for oft ignored Asian voices in both literature and cinema. When Hollywood approached him to turn the first book into a movie in 2016, Uh, Kwan famously turned down an offer from Netflix, with which he, quote, could have moved to an island and never worked another day. Instead, he gambled on a theatrical release with Warner Brothers, marking the first time a major studio produced a movie with an all-Asian cast since Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club in 1993. It went on to become the highest grossing comedy in a decade cementing Kwan's status as a cultural pioneer and proving to Hollywood, and this is what's so important, a culture still happily whitewashing casts that there was a thirst for actual Asian characters. Talk a little bit about that and the importance of what Crazy Rich Asians did in our cultural zeitgeist.
1: I mean, that's just absolutely surreal to hear, actually. Um, I want to read that article because <laughs> 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 I didn't know about that one. Um, oh, it's, it's really great. Yeah, it's, it's very surreal for me to hear these things um, in association with my book. Because I feel like I just sat in a corner and read a book. The movement was a result of all the amazing people that came out and supported the movie and made it a cause, you know, and, and made it so important to send a message to Hollywood. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the millions of people in America, around the world, that just really, really made it a mission to go to the theaters on opening weekend, to see it again and again. You know, I think within the Asian American community, so many people bought out entire theaters all around America. And hosted these big parties. And so it's 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 profound for me when I hear things, something like that. And the gratitude there, also the surreality of of this movie, this book being the one that kind of was the the damn breaker, you know. Um,
2: but you were and the, I, yeah, you were the fairy, you were the ferryman as well. I mean, it was really because of the choices that you made that the movie became what it was. You decided, you, 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 were, you really stuck to your guns in many ways. And I think that, has, that speaks a lot about you and the way you have approached in your own life the idea of the tropes of the Asian community and how it's treated here in the United States. And I believe it probably goes a little bit toward your background, because you actually moved here when you were 11, right? I was, and you moved to Texas,
1: right? I did, and I think for me, my awakening into the fact that there was even was a problem was very slow and gradual, but I think it uniquely poised me to actually help be part of this. I'll I'll explain. So I grew up in Singapore, you know, till I was age eleven, and there. We had one channel that was English that would show stuff like, you know, Falcon Crest and Knight Rider and Baywatch and have the English news read by Chinese Singaporeans, of course, you know, those were the anchormen. And then we had another channel that was the Mandarin channel um, that would showcase the best of Asian cinema, Asian TV, there were Asian soap operas. Um, amazing martial arts, arts stuff, you know. So, so I was toggling all through my childhood between watching the amazing Chinese shows and the American or British shows, whatever. So it was always multicultural for me. I didn't, I didn't experience a lack, if you know what I mean. Sure. I grew up seeing empowered, attractive Asian men and women on the screen from the, from the day I was born. So when I first moved to America at age 11, you know, I didn't realize that, oh, there's no more Chinese channel. You know, I now had 365 channels of cable TV and MTV and Nickelodeon, and I loved it all, you know, and I went about my life. And it wasn't until I was in my probably mid-20s that I realized you know, wait a minute. No one is showing contemporary Asia in any way, shape, or form in America or in the West for that matter. You know, when I go into bookstores, there are historic novels set in Asia. You know, beautiful books by Amy Tan and Lisa C. You know, there's a grand tradition of historical China being showcased in fiction. There's also the Asian American assimilation story exemplified by such writers as Maxine Hong Kingston, you know, such like that. And that was amazing. But no one was telling the story of contemporary Asia now, of the people I would see every time I went back to Asia, when I would visit Hong Kong or Tokyo or Thailand. No one was telling that story of this culture, you know, this this region that was experiencing, to me, unprecedented change and growth. And so I said, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write a novel that's going to be set in the Asia that I know.
2: And to talk about how you drew the stories you drew upon. What I read somewhere was that you spent, you spent a lot of time with your dad when he was ill, and you drew upon a lot of stories that he and you would, would you'd reminisce about what it was like, When you were back in Singapore,
1: yes, this really was really the beginning, the genesis of the project. Um, In two thousand nine, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, Hmm. which, as you know, is is a death sentence for most people. And so, I, I took off work. I took off six months' work. You know, and being self employed, I was able to just shut things down, and I went down to you know Texas where he was being treated in houston at md anderson and i would drive him every day to his radiology appointments or see doctors and and it was my chance to really sort of spend time with him but i had an ulterior motive you know i i knew that he was one of my last links to a world that i knew very little about this was the singapore that he grew up in in the 30s and 40s and 50s and you know he really had a very enchanted childhood. I mean, he really, he was a child of privilege and he had so many memories of that world. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know about my grand, my great grandfather, who he knew. Um, He grew up in his great grandfather's house. You know, there were, there were fruit orchards, there were tennis courts, there was a pond, you know, so I, I made him just tell me all these stories and they just really brought back memories of my childhood in Singapore, which was nowhere near as (laughs) pampered as his was, you know, Um, by the time I came along, you know, we were, we were privileged, but we weren't decadent, (laughs) you know, in the way that he was, he was raised, you know, truly with a platinum spoon in his mouth. Um, But it reconnected me, you know, to those memories and, and, and really sort of Also, you know, just seeing him, I think, kind of slowly fade away over the the course of, you know, 16 months. It really reinforced in me that, you know what, if you're going to write a novel, do it now. Don't wait till you're 60, you know. it's,
2: It's a devastating illness. But, you know, I mean, interestingly enough, I think the pandemic that we're going through right now is making people understand the very same thing that we don't have a lot of time to waste mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Truly. That there, that there is a wall at the end of the road, so to speak. And, uh, but what a great thing to be able to have that time with your dad uh, and to be able to spend that time with him.
1: It was very special. And I think in many ways, you know, what I got out of it was, first of all, the inspiration. But I, I really feel, you know, not to get weird on you, but I really feel like he's looked out after me. Because who would have thought, you know, you know what the publishing business is like. You know what selling books are like. This is a comet. What happened was the equivalent of a comet. Because, you know, as a veteran of the publishing industry, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. Maybe, maybe there's a chance some small publisher somewhere will pick it up they'll do a 1500 print run. We'll have a very nice party. Maybe you'll do a party for me down at books and books, (laughs) invite a few friends, have some champagne. And that's the end of it. We'll get maybe one nice mention, you know, in people magazine, Kim Hubbard might be nice to me. And then that was all, that was the (laughs) sum total of my expectation for this book.
2: Well, I'm so glad that it was that comment. And then, and then there was the film. So how did that come together? How did that, how did that, uh, now you, your background, and I should let everyone know, you graduated as an undergraduate with a degree in media studies, right? And was film part of that? Was film something that always interested you? Yes,
1: absolutely. You know, so there were, there were fil- I took film studies courses as well. I actually took filmmaking courses. Um, but my second degree was a was a visual communications degree at Parsons in New York. You got your MFA in photography, right? Pretty much. BFA actually. A BFA. Um, yeah, so I, I got I'm one of these strange people that got two different bachelor degrees cool. <laughs> in a row. Um really because I felt like the MFA didn't give me enough of the technical classes I wanted to take. Right. And, and I if really you didn't wanted want to teach delve deep
2: he didn't want no. to teach, there was no reason to get an no. MFA.
1: I really wanted to learn the craft of of filmmaking, video making, you know, color photography, printing, all of it, graphic design. I really wanted a comprehensive visual education. So I, I kind of like created my own degree in a way.
2: So when the bu- when the book hit, and when when it when it became the big bestseller that it was, and Hollywood came calling, you had a good sense, you know, of the process. So how did you decide to do and go with who you went with? I mean, how did you, you know, did you then at that point have a strong sense that you wanted to keep it, keep the roots, you know, the Asian roots there and not give it up to somebody else? You wanted to keep a hand in it, so to speak, because you are an executive producer on it as well. Yeah,
1: and I, I'll i go back for... Let's rewind for one second just to just to clarify things. So Hollywood came calling even before the book was published. So the book came out in May of 2013, um, right before Memorial Day weekend. By April, there was already so much buzz about the book. um, And you know, a lot of people in media were reading about it. Of course, Anna Winter had already, you know, decided that she was going to excerpt it in Vogue. But it sort of became, I remember my agent was telling me, Barbara Walters called me up and requested a copy. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. and then one night the phone rang in my editor's office, uh, my amazing editor, Jenny Jackson, fantastic uh-huh. of Knopf Day. And she said, this woman left this message and I couldn't really comprehend what she was saying because she, was, she basically said, hi, I want, to build the, I want to buy the film rights to create some Please call me back. My name is Wendy Ding Murdoch. Gotcha. So my <laughs> editor freaked out, <laughs> called me up. I think this was on a Thursday. And by mon- Monday of the following week, I was sitting down to lunch with Wendy Ding Murdoch. And I, you know, I only knew her by reputation. And she, and I said, you know, I don't want this to become just a vanity project for someone who happens to be married to Rupert Murdoch. How serious is she in about films and all that, right? And I went in and met her at lunch and was absolutely charmed and captivated by her. And she came so prepared she had a whole cast list of who she, who she saw in the movie. And we were so in sync with everything. She actually sort of raised the bar immediately. She set the bar.
2: That's great.
1: You know, in terms of her expectations. And she said, we're going to film it completely in location. We're going to have these actors and and I looked at the cast list and I was like, this is amazing. If you can get them, that would be great. She's like, yes, I do. I have them all on speed dial, you know? (laughs) And then she said, and please take this book and sign it for me. Sign it to Ang Lee because I want him to direct your movie. And so I was like (laughs) that. And I don't know if this had an effect on, you know, we were in the process of doing a deal. And suddenly, everyone had heard heard, Wendy Ding Murdoch is interested in this project. We sh- you know, so Hollywood, all these other players began climbing in. Right. And that's really what kicked things off. Um, it didn't end up working out with her. I think partly also because she, a couple of weeks after we met, she was embroiled in her divorce with Rupert right, Murdoch.
2: Right, right,
1: And so that train got derailed. But the other players remained,
2: you went with and Nina Jacobson, I believe it was from Nina. Hunger Games. Nina
1: Jacobson from, from the Hunger Games, Color Force, initially, yes. And, and, then, and, um, John and then John Panati got involved as well. Um, but yeah, but really that meeting with Wendy set the tone because I realized this is how I want to do it. And if I can't do it with you know, absolutely putting together a dream team of an amazing director, and a cast and filming on location and being true to my story and actually being involved, then I don't want to do it at all. Like I don't need to get a movie made, you know, if they're going to do it, they have to do it right.
2: She gave you the roadmap and you realize that you could do it the right way. Exactly. You know, she laid it out there.
1: Yeah. And knowing- and Nina, Nina and John were amazing partners. Yeah. You know, they wanted the author to be involved from day one.
2: SK, SK Global with uh, John and Sidney Kimmel are wonderful people. And uh, they really, um, I know that they love you and what the book became as well. So, you know, you're right, I guess. It was a comet in which all the forces came together. It was, you know, I've seen, I've, I've been doing this for 40 years, so I've seen hundreds of thousands of books come through. And it's rare that you have the confluence of such a wonderful uh, author, who's also nice, <laughs> and You're very also, sweet. Yeah. and also, you know, from an artistic point of view, uh, hitting on all the different uh, burners that it needed to hit mm-hmm. on. So, congratulations on all of that. And um, how, Thank did you. Aqua, how did Aquafina get involved? She was tremendous in in the film
1: as well. She was uh, great. It's it's interesting when we began casting the film, you know, John Chu and I had long long talks, and that's a whole other story of serendipity that we will get into in a later at yeah. a later date. But you know, because you know, John Chu is in my book, Crazy Rich Asians. Do you know that?
2: No, I didn't. I don't actually. <laughs> I, I it's almost
1: mind. like I wove a spell and sort of forced him to direct my movie. Wow. Um, there there is a line. It's interesting. So. Do we want to go there or can I sidetrack no, for a second? No, go, no, yeah. no, 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 This is fun. This is yeah. great. So when I was writing my book, one of my best friends um, was an Asian American girl. Um, and I actually didn't know that many Asian Americans, believe it or not. You know, um I, I lived in New York for the last twenty years. My friends were from all around the world, different types of people, native New Yorkers. And she was one of the few actual Asian Americans that I became friends with. And she would tell me about her family in Palo Alto, you know, in the Bay Area. And how she would go back for holidays, Thanksgiving, it was, you know, she was so close to her cousins, everyone was loving and supportive. And that was so novel to me because that's the complete antithesis of, of of my family Thanksgiving, (laughs) you know, we'll leave it at that. But so I was fascinated by someone that was actually so close to her relatives and her cousins. And, and, and then one day she told me, you know, my young cousin, my baby cousin, John has become a director. Wow. And, you know, he made a movie about Justin Bieber. So let's go to the premiere together. So I went with her to the premiere of Justin Bieber, the Justin Bieber concert movie, just right. almost as a joke. Like, you know, I'm supporting her. I'm supporting the cousin. I really could care less about Justin Bieber, you know, and met, you know, met her cousin for a split second. He doesn't remember meeting me that day, of course, because he was in the middle red carpet stuff. And then I watched this movie with her, and it was stunning. It was such a beautifully, innovatively made documentary. Hmm. Um, I fell in love with Justin Bieber's music. (laughs) Um, You know, had a whole new appreciation. And so at that time, I was writing my novel. And so much of what she was telling me about her family really became the inspiration point for creating... Rachel Chu. You know my friend's name is Vivian Chu, so I I sort of named Rachel and Chu sort of after her as a tribute to her and Mm. and there's a line where I you know where Nicholas Young, my character, is defending Rachel and her family to his mother, and he says, and I'm going to paraphrase and misquote myself. And he says something like, you know, you know, she comes from a very accomplished family. One of her cousins is a famous director in Hollywood. Oh, fantastic. That's um great. Flash forward, you know, six years later, John's reading the book and he reads that line. <laughs> and something occurred. He's like, this is so weird. Is he talking about me? Because... Everything about this Chu family he talks about in the book sounds like my Chu family. Wow. And it was. It actually was. So we came full circle there. In yet another magical link.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's um, all interconnected. Yeah. It's beautiful. Really, really. But beautiful.
1: Back to your original question. So when we started collaborating, you know, we, we had long talks about casting. And, and he really wanted to open it up. You know, he didn't want to just concentrate on the classic theater-trained actors. He wanted to look at everyone. He wanted to look at people who were influential in pop culture. And Aquafina, of course, at that time was a rapper, and she had this amazing YouTube videos, and we were just watching them and seeing just this raw talent And, and thinking, wow, we could be great somewhere. Where can we fit her in? You know, she's not one of these Asian socialites, but she can really, she'd make a really interesting pick, Lynn. You know, and so there we have it. And the rest is history.
2: No, she was perfect. And, you know, a part of her background is in publishing. Did you know that? She worked at Rodale Publishers for a while and they fired her when they found out that she did that Vag, the Vag Mm -hmm. uh, song. Yeah,
1: that that YouTube video that went viral, that song.
2: Even though she was like, she had like a, a disguise, they recognized her voice. And, Rod- and I think that's why Rodale went out of business.
1: <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. She never told me that story, but that's, that's really funny. Yeah,
2: no, but she was great. And then she went on to do yeah. the farewell and she was phenomenal in that as well. You, you, just all the choices were great. I mean, Rachel was a revelation and you know, it, it did, it did justice to your book and you should be very proud of it. But in that same article, I quoted the headline from that article uh, leads me into Sex and Vanity. The headline is Crazy Rich Asians author Kevin Kwan tackles crazy rich Americans. That's the headline <laughs> of the article. So tell us about Sex and Vanity.
1: So Sex and Vanity is really began as my homage to one of my favorite books of all time, A Room of a View. Yes. And it was really meant to be kind of... A breath of fresh air, I, you know, after writing this trilogy that is so densely packed of characters and layers and storylines and timelines, I just wanted to do something utterly simple, you know? And I wanted an excuse to be able to do it in Italy. <laughs> and, and that was the dream anyway, it didn't end up being the reality of what, what happened. But so the idea sort of was kind of forming in my head for over 10 years of traveling to Italy, specifically to Capri. Um, which I would go almost every summer. And I could really see the idea of this beautiful summer romance, you know, beginning on this island and then transporting it back to America, back to New York. And it was, you know, my way of doing a Truman Capote on my experience in New York, um, you know, with, with far less sharp knives, of course. Um, Than he deployed. Um, I'm not describing my book. I just realized that I'm just sort of talking around it. <laughs> is uh, that okay? As
2: we should. <laughs> yeah. The best thing is when you don't give too much about the. book. Yeah.
1: That's so my, the book is a my romance. In me talking. Thank you. The book is a romance. It's a travel log, tribute to to, to Capri, but it's also you know hopefully a funny satire. Oh, it of is. New York, and sort of East Coast wasp society.
2: Well, and you, you you do that. You skewer you skewer people so beautifully well. I mean, the whole idea even even from even when we talk about, you know, their their, their preoccupation with what schools they went to, I really enjoyed all of that <laughs> as well. But no, Thank it's you. it's fantastic. But I, I wanna now circle back a little bit to what I said earlier is that we go way back and we go way back, and that has to do pretty much with when you did get your bfa and you went to parson's and you studied photography and media and all of that and then you went to work for media companies and publishers and your own aesthetic developed and or you may have had that aesthetic beforehand and we first met when you did a book a wonderful book called i was cuba it was the work of ramiro fernandez right?
1: I believe we first met when I packaged and produced a book called Presenting Celia Cruz.
2: You're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. You are right. I remember it now. Alexis Rodriguez Duarte and Tico Torres. Yes, yes,
2: yes. yes you're yeah. right. I had forgotten about
1: that. So that was my, f- that was the, the first
2: one with Celia Cruz. first
1: one was Celia Cruz. Seven Kwan project. That's the first yeah. book I project, you know. And that's what actually led me to Ramiro. I remember the
2: size of it. Yeah. I, I think we even did Celia I think Celia was even in the
1: store. She was not. Was she dead by that time? Yes, she was.
2: So she had been she in the was. store prior to that. Yes, we actually I'm sure did she event. had. We actually yeah. did an event with Celia Cruz prior to that. That's you know, amazing. I remember that book completely. It was an oversized book, mm-hmm.
1: right? Big coffee table book Beautiful. showcasing the photography of Alexis and his, his, his you know, 20-year friendship with Celia. Right. And that's, Ramiro Fernandez was a friend of Alexis Rodriguez Duarte, and he basically pestered me. I met him at the book signing, and he pestered me to look at his, he's like, I have a great collection of Cuban photography. And I was like, okay, great, fantastic. He's like, call me, I want to show it to you. And so for a year, he would pester me, and I had absolutely no interest in seeing this work. <laughs> and finally, you know, just to get rid of him, I said, okay, I'll come over and look at your, your Cuban photography. And I remember going to his apartment and him opening up boxes and boxes of these amazing rare archival photographs. And I saw in front of me the entire history of photography, basically. Because he had prints from 1859, which is just a couple of years after the invention of photography, going from there to the 60s, to to the revolution. And I looked at these amazing images of Cuba and had never seen anything, it blew my mind. And I said, this has to be a book. This has to be a book. It has to be a visual journey. And I had a complete vision of how to do it. And he basically gave me the license to take his collection and create a book out of it. You know, um, it was magical. It was yet another magical experience where I could see in a flash everything about the book I wanted to design and
2: there's create. Been nothing like it, you know, there's been nothing like that book. I mean, I mean, we sold thousands of that book. You can imagine
1: being in Miami. Yeah, I mean, it stayed in print for 10 years. Sure. I mean, through, you know, four different editions, which is a big deal for a photographic book. People don't realize. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I, to this day, I, I lo- it's one of my favorite projects ever. And it's, I'm so proud of it. So because, let's, you know.
2: Let's, let's unwind that because I want, I mean, the big, the bridge that I want to learn about is how you went from, I mean, you were at Interview, right? You worked with Martha mm-hmm. Stewart. You, you, know, you created your own design company, right? You had your own. Absolutely. Did you, did you work with everything from websites to designing.
1: Set a, design for dance theater. Design. Yeah,
2: so It was a kind of creative studio.
1: Basically, it? I was a professional dilettante. <laughs> this is my problem. I liked so yeah. many things that I could never settle on one thing. So the only way I could do that was to have my own crazy little creative consulting firm where I could do what I wanted. I could design a photographic book. I could design a book about Celia Cruz. I could just help design the TED website. I could work on dance theater for my downtown dance theater friends. You know, It was just an excuse to get involved in interesting stuff.
2: All right. So, so the, the thing that I need to learn about is how did you go from design to writing now so was writing always was that something always that you did was to write to creatively write when you were young you you know when you when you moved to when you went to parsons where did the writing how did the writing component overlay everything that you were
1: doing so i i did always write since i was young but i think i actually drew more i was much more of a visual artist as a kid and in high school, I was, you know, like the art geek. Basically, I was one of the art boys, you know. Um, and then in my senior year of high school, I it was the first time that I could write creatively because until then, you're reading Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, and Walt Whitman, and you know all this and stuff. You're they not make sure create. that you're going to be writing like that. Yeah, and you're writing essays, you know, you know, basically book essays. So only in my senior year was I first given a chance to write creatively, and I found that I had a talent for it. And so when I graduated, I I went to school for media studies, but I also did a specialization in creative writing.
2: Oh, I did. Okay, perfect.
1: Absolutely. So there was a part of me that was very, very straight journalism, you know, wanting to be a future Joan Didion. But the other part of me was writing experimental poetry. Um, In fact, a poem I wrote in college, this was at University of Houston, became the basis for the book Crazy Rich Asians. I I wrote a poem called Singapore Bible Study and it literally took me 15 minutes to write. It was an assignment for my poetry class and I wrote it in 15 minutes, you know, just to meet, (laughs) meet the assignment. And the reaction was so profound from the class. Um, people couldn't stop talking about it. They wanted to know more because it was such a little entry point to this little known world. Hmm. You know, so the poem got published in several anthologies and journals. Or it made its way around. It became a favorite of mine when I performed because I did a lot of poetry slams. And, you know, I would, I would do readings as well. Um, and then the visual side still called me. And it was my way to get out of Houston and my way to go to art school and, you know, really kind of synthesize all the elements of my education, really. So, so I kind of, so I left, yeah, I moved to New York. In the late 90s, right? In the mid 90s, 95, yeah. yeah. And, kind of, and kind of put writing on hold and went into this whole world of art and design. But I always found that my favorite clients were the publishers. You know, I was packaging books, I was working on on. I was photo editing books for people like Michael Corda and Larry McMurtry and Taylor Branch and Vidal, And like, it was always the writers that were, were my favorite clients because I think they understood that even though I was offering a visual service, I was a writer at heart. I understood what they were trying to communicate. And so what is the best picture to communicate your book for your book cover? I knew how to do that. You know what is the best sequence of images to illustrate this point? You know, in in historical book, Larry McMurtry was doing. I was the person to do that because I understood. I had this dexterity between the visual world and the text world.
2: So you were doing. You were doing. You were designing book jackets as well. I
1: was designing book jackets and I was doing a lot of photo research and photo editing of books. Sure, sure. You know,
2: tell that, so you did the Taylor Branch, the Martin Luther King.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. At Canaan's Edge, the last book. So the list is long of the amazing authors I I got to work with over, you know, over my 15-year career. And the Um, people
2: that you met and the people that you dealt with. I mean, the late 90s in New York was a
1: very interesting place. It was an amazing, amazing time to be tangentially working and publishing. Well, it was also the
2: birth of the internet, how the, the, yeah. you know, the internet was growing and people were trying to figure out how to use it.
1: Yeah. Do you yeah. remember a book called Elizabeth Taylor, My Love Affair of Jewelry? Yes, I do. I mean, I can, I can show it to you if you don't. No, I do. I do. I do.
2: Was that yours? <laughs>
1: that was mine too. That was a huge oversized yeah. um, coffee table book. Simon & Schuster did it. Right. They did a half million print run and it sold out in a week. That was one of my projects too. You know
2: well, listen, Kevin, so, I can, yeah, I thank you for putting my kids through preschool.
1: <laughs> clearly you're the guy you're the I, guy. I highly yeah. doubt it i don't know I don't know how you're making that link well,
2: but um with, with yeah. all the books that I sold it, it's uh clearly it was something that you did when you were living in New York at that time, any influences, major influences, people that you look to from a writing perspective as well as from a design perspective
1: so there are probably two key people in in my life that I will say were like godfathers to me. Um, the first one was Tibor Kalman. Wow! Do you remember Tibor Kalman? Of
2: course. Well, I know his. I know Tibor and his wife and
1: Myra. Yeah, uh, Myra. Yeah. Yeah. So my first. job...
2: Tibor died a number of years ago,
1: right? He did. He died in 1999. Yeah. So my first job out of college, out of Parsons, was working for his design company, M&Company.
2: Yeah. No, they made the greatest watches. I they
1: did. Yeah, they did. And, and so I went to work for him, and he wow. he basically broke me in half. He taught me a new way of seeing. You know, he taught me to appreciate the beauty of the vernacular object. You know, a can of soup and the design of a of a, right. of a can of Campbell's right. soup, for example, right. Right. or a or the beauty of a, an African tribesman. Um, give me one second; I'll be right back. Can of we do this course. one second? Do you remember this book?
2: Let me see. Oh, look at that! Yes, I, I do know that book. Absolutely.
1: So Tibor conceived of the idea of doing a book on global fashion um, from looking at, you know. Right, street right. people in Africa it's, to yes. a Mongolian couple, and he passed away before he could, you know, before before we even began working on it. But I was able to really take the baton and create this book for him in honor of him. You know, working with Myra Kalman, um, I, you know, I I found fifteen thousand photographs and edited and curated them and sequenced them, and in a way, it sort of is the genesis of I Was Cuba. And the way I use pictures to tell stories. Sure. You know, creating visual, visual sequences. So I trained with Tibor, and he taught me a whole new way to see the world. Um, number one. So he was in a, tr- a tremendous influence, as was Myra, you know. Um, and there's a line, there's a through line of, of working on this book, to Myra recommending me to Elizabeth Taylor, to working on, a, on Elizabeth Taylor's book, and the editor of that book, was Michael Corda, the yeah, editor in chief of Simon and Schuster,
2: what a guy he is, huh?
1: And he really is my second godfather, because you know we became friends, you know, in the trenches of doing the Elizabeth Taylor book, and then he would hire me to work on all the great books for Simon and Schuster for Larry McMurtry, you know, for Taylor Branch, for you know the list is long. Um, I, I, yeah, Gloria Vanderbilt yeah, was another yeah, one yeah. of his projects, so yeah. I became the photo editor for all his celebrity books, basically.
2: He's a very, um, he was, he's a very generous person. He, was, he:
1: truly, truly is. And know, when, like, he, was, when yeah. he was
2: doing his horse, when he was riding a lot with his wife mm-hmm. when she was alive, he lived in, you know just up the road from Miami. And yeah. so we were do an, I, have a, I have a photo that I will send you that is, if I can find it. It's kind of stunning. It's him against a wall of books giving an event for us. Mm-hmm. Which I would yeah. love then too, if I can...
1: Follow. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's, he's such a renaissance man in many ways, yeah. you know, because really. not only was he the, you know, the ultimate editor-in-chief and, you know, the editor of, I mean, the list is so long of people he discovered and was editor for, you know, over a 50-year career. Um, but I remember I had this manuscript that I was writing, you know, I was writing my own novel. Didn't dare show it to anyone. Um, But one day I finally confessed to my friend, Deborah Davis, who is also a New York Times bestselling author of Strapless. Um, I told her what I was doing and she's like, show me the manuscript. And so I gave it to her, you know, one weekend before Thanksgiving, it was about 50% done. And the Monday after Thanksgiving, I get an email from her and the subject heading was no with like 10 O's. And I said, okay, she doesn't like my, <laughs> she hates my novel. And I clicked open and she said, Kevin, you ruined my Thanksgiving. I couldn't cook for my family. All I did was want to read your stupid manuscript, which is so brilliant.
2: Oh, that's great.
1: And I called her up and, and she's like, when are you going to show this to an agent? I was like, it's 50% done. I'm not going to show it. I don't think anyone's going to be interested. And she's like, Kevin, do me a favor, send this. To Michael Corda right now. I know he's your friend, you know. And I said, No, that's, that's nonsense. It's like, it's like going to Michelangelo and saying, Here, I made this little piece of pottery. Would you look at it? You know, like my little mud cup. I was like, Abs-. So she badgered me until I did it. So I sent him my manuscript. And a day later, I think I sent it to him on a Wednesday and on a Friday he called me and he's like, so, you know, usually when I work with him, when I talk to him and I work on his projects for his authors, he's effusively complimentary. He goes, Kevin, you are a genius. Oh my God. How did you come up with that idea for that jacket? And the Oh my God, you're amazing. Here he was very measured. He's like, so yeah, I, I read your manuscript, and you know, um, it's 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 you know something that I've never seen before. So what I've done is I've called my agent Lynn Nesbit and sent it on to her. Wow! And that was the beginning of the Crazy Rich Agent's roller coaster.
2: Thanks to him. Was Lynn your is Lynn your agent? Is that
1: Lynn? You know, it went to Lynn Nesbit. She passed it along, because I was a nobody, I think, she passed it along to one of her junior agents and said, here, take a look, reject it if you want, you know.
2: <laughs> An agent um, is no longer a junior a- agent. That point. agent is, is, is
1: Alexander Machinist, <laughs> um, who I believe has seven authors on the New York Times bestseller right. lists right. this week alone. Um, It she's amazing, but you know, she, she discovered me. And, you know, so it's amazing how, and I've never really talked about this until today with you, you know, all the links and Michael Korda being the fairy godfather who really, you know, if it wasn't for him giving it to Lynn Mm -hmm. and it ending up on Alexandra's slush pile and her picking it up um, because it took her six weeks you know, I, I think it was on a pile, like meant for the shredder.
2: Well, you know, the beauty, <laughs> the beauty for someone like me is yeah when you see the roots that you have that run deep in this industry. And now having the success you have, for me, is so much sweeter as well. And I also know that it's, it's the kind of excess, success that will last you know, from here into the future.
1: You're very and, kind to say that.
2: And, it, and I, I already see it with sex yeah. and, sex and uh, vanity is already happening. Would you read a little bit from it for us?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to read you the email that's, that really gets the ball rolling, that sets everything in motion for this story. From Isabel Chu to lucytangchurchill at gmail.com subject la dolce vita lucy i'm so happy you're coming to my wedding in capri do you know apart from my family you're the person i've known the longest who will be there i can hardly believe we've been friends since i was 13 and you were seven you were the only kid i ever babysat although I would hardly consider it babysitting since you had to endure repeated viewings of Roswell and hear me moan nonstop about my obsessions. Remember remember Nikolai? Ran into him at Erewhon the other day. He's in LA working as a location scout for Lawrence Bender, and he's totally unrecognizable now. Anyway, after getting approval from my mom's fortune teller, we've chosen an auspicious day in July to celebrate our nuptials. And Capri, where Adolfi spent his summer of where he Dolphy spent every summer of his youth and where his family has deep roots will be absolutely magical at the time. It's so special to me that you're joining us. And of course, I remember your cousin Charlotte and look forward to seeing her too. I can't wait for all of us to be on the island together and for you to meet my friends. My calligrapher is behind schedule because she was a bit unprepared for the sheer number of guests, but the formal invitations should be done by the end of the month. Be on the lookout for yours. XOXO. Izzy and
2: then it all begins
1: and then it all begins.
2: Well, Kevin, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the literary life with
1: me. It's really an honor to be speaking with you and to be on a literary life. So thank you. And thank you for all your support over decades. You know, I've never got a chance to say that. So.
2: And I also want to know that I, I look forward to the day when, um, after this we could go and have a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and be together physically as opposed to just over the internet
1: but it'd be it'd be amazing i, I want a good cortadito you got
2: it. <laughs> anyway thanks again kevin
1: thank you. you cheers